This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Alan Clements. Alan is a human rights activist, artist, and former Buddhist monk, extensively trained in Buddhist psychology and insight meditation. He's the author of The Voice of Hope, Burma, The Next Killing Fields, and a new book, A Future to Believe in. With Sounds True, he's published the audio learning program, Natural Freedom, the Dharma Beyond Buddhism. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Alan and I spoke about the archetype of feminine power found in the life and actions of Burmese Nobel laureate and political activist Aung Sushi. We also spoke about the collapse of certainty in the face of war and genocide, and the idea of the interdependence of our freedom as well as asking ourselves the question, what is freedom? Here's my conversation with Alan Clements. We're having this conversation only days after the recent release of Aung San Sushi, who has been under house arrest on again and off again for nearly two decades. And Alan I'm hoping that you can help us understand what this release means on the world stage, at least to you, why this is so important to you. Tammy, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991, uh, has come to symbolize the feminine power of of caring for things larger than one's own self, on one hand. On the other hand, she's come also to symbolize the power of freedom as a global experience. And the importance to me of her release is to draw the distinction, Tammy, of being released versus being freed. I mean, she, the, the bolt of her door was unlocked. She has been allowed to travel to city center and meet with a few journalists and a few interviews that have been granted, but knowing her from those six months that I spent doing The Voice of Hope with her, the book that we co-authored, uh, she does not consider herself free when her people are not free. And certainly the 2,100 political prisoners that are still detained at this very moment, including the 242 nuns and monks that were the leaders of the Saffron Revolution that many of us witnessed on television that were brutally massacred and many of them beaten or tortured and imprisoned, remain behind bars. Aung San Suu Kyi is released, but surely in her heart, she does not consider herself freed. And I think that's a very important distinction. For me, ultimately, freedom for her would mean, on the one hand, uh, that the prisoners are released, her fellow prisoners of conscience. She's free to travel without fear of harm. People are able to gather with her equally, openly, freedom of speech. And more to the point, I've been advocating in the press and international news over the course of the last two weeks since she's been released, that she be allowed and granted 
the use of a satellite video phone from the safety of her home, where she's able to address the United Nations General Assembly and let us hear from the lady, her herself, from Aung San Suu Kyi, what does she want us to know about how she holds the vision of her country and democracy, the elections that just took place? How does she want us to understand how she refers to a peaceful, nonviolent revolution? How can we participate in that revolution? And she's calling for dialogue with the regime that imprisoned her. What does she want us to do and know to support that dialogue of reconciliation with many in the world whom consider to be, you know, an epic paternal predator dictatorship? And so, in a way, she's representing you know, the archetype of feminine power versus hyper-aggressive misogyny. And so, in her symbolism and her humanist to me is really about a beautiful new edge of, of, of the Dharma that, on the one hand, is decidedly unafraid of merging timeless spiritual truths with radical, nonviolent political leadership. So she certainly is a woman that I really feel that will bring something to the world if allowed to speak to the honorable members of the United Nations and there let the dialogue begin and show the world the possibility, hopefully, that the only way that we can solve our differences in the world ultimately is going to be through learning how to talk with one another rather than through cruelty destruction, and war. Alan, it might be helpful if you can fill in for our listeners a little bit of the story of how you came to spend time interviewing Aung San Suu Kyi for the book, The Voice of Hope, and how your relationship with her has progressed over the years. Well, Tammy, my first introduction to Burma was back in 76, when I entered the country as a young kind of American seeker artist desiring to study the ancient teachings of Buddhism, specifically uh, the Satipatthana Vipassana meditation system, which is most contemporarily known as mindfulness or Vipassana insight meditation. And I had sought to study with Mahasi Sayadaw, who was often referred to as the Dalai Lama of Burma and certainly one of the, the main monks in the world who brought these ancient teachings of um, mindful presence to one's life, to Thailand, to Laos, Cambodia, certainly to Europe, and of course to America. And at that time, I did not know, Tammy, that Burma was a dictatorship. And so I asked to ordain, but I couldn't, because it was one of the most restricted countries on earth based on this, this very maniacal totalitarian regime. And for the next year, I really kind of pined as a kind of unrequited Dharma love where I pursued my art in Los Angeles. And eventually, through a serendipity of odd events, we invited a group of these same monks to America. And at the end of that trip, I just felt compelled, I guess like a caterpillar, to climb the tree and get into some kind of cocoon to, to, to further this unexplainable metamorphosis of, of awakening. At least that's how it felt and uh, flew off with Mahasi Sayadaw and these monks back to Rangoon, where, with his support, 
petitioned the dictator for me to stay as a monk. And on the seventh day of my visa, about to expire, they granted me this extension, which eventually allowed me to stay in the country for the better part of the next decade. And uh, it was a, I guess it was my spiritual mecca. I felt like I had come home to something I'd never known before in my heart and in my life and my mind. The nuns, the monks, they became my brothers and sisters and fathers and uh, daughters. It was a family that was just so profoundly intimate that I would often cry with joy, which was not something that was uh, known to me prior to that. And then coming to the end of this story, in 1988, people will remember, well, I should say in 1989, when the infamous crackdown on the peaceful protesters in China in Tiananmen Square, those massacres that took place. Well, a year before that, a million people in Burma peacefully took to the streets in what became known as the massacres of August 8, 1988. And uh, at that time, I had been thrown out of the country, and I had disrobed, and friends were calling me where I was living in California, and I could hear gunshots. And frankly, my whole world just turned inside out. I was not familiar with the world of violence that I was hearing and seeing from that particular seven days of tragedy that diplomats said that up to 10,000 people were killed, many of them as young as 10, 11, 12 at close range, all of them unarmed. And uh, so from that, I went into the country thinking that I needed to be near my spiritual family. And eventually, from that encounter with the personal experience of seeing just uh, gross human rights atrocities, I'd never witnessed such things, um, which led to the writing of my first book called Burma, the Next Killing Fields, blessed with a forward by the Dalai Lama. Literally, the title speaks for itself, Tammy. Um, I'd spent two months in the jungle and witnessing firsthand uh, not just the persecution, uh, but ethnic cleansing was not something I'd ever seen or known or even conceived of. And it still makes me tremble when I think of those unforgettable months of witnessing such atrocities. And so... Can you tell us what you saw, just to give us a sense when you say that? I can, I can. You know, I've written about it. But, but when you see entire villages uh, that are that are burned where even the animals are, are charcoaled like a, a luau. I would often see groups of women fleeing, screaming, and crying from these villages, many of them who would later on tragically talk about forced gang rape. And uh, you would often find in these triple canopy jungles, you know, where I would spend the time with with many of the young students that had fled the city who were the protesters during this 88 uprising. Uh, you would find firefights and, and rocket attacks and even uh, jet attacks, bombings. And, and, and so there was a lot of death, both that you visually would see, and I have to say the smell of death is something that just became too overwhelming for me to understand or to integrate into my I would call it so-called Buddhist insight understanding of, of even its most compelling core quality of, of, of suffering or dukkha. I just always thought of suffering as something 
of unmet desires or rejection in a relationship or not having your needs met, but to see life and death and trauma up so close, set aside mass persecution and genocide and screaming refugees that were as terrified as anything I'd ever known. And of course, later on, I spent nearly a year during the final year of the war in the former Yugoslavia. So it became something that wasn't just specific to Burma, but became a desire of mine to understand what is this thing called man's inhumanity to man? You know, why are we aggressing upon each other? It's one thing to identify greed, anger, and delusion, but but I, I myself felt, you know, that if these feelings were something I could see in them, then surely they're in me, and that if the conditions were to arise, it may very well be that I'm the one who is the enemy who oppresses another. So it was quite an experience to see that. And it stayed with me. It really shook me at my bones. It really questioned the very core understanding of my so-called understanding from meditation. And uh, as a result of that, I eventually did several books and eventually was invited to meet Aung San Suu Kyi by a very dear friend of mine in 1995, soon after her release from her first six years of detention. And uh, my heart was... Uh, empowered by one question, you know, she called her country's uprising a revolution of the spirit. And it was that phrase, Tammy, that I wanted to know, what do you mean by that? And I invited her to do a book of conversations, which I and you have both referred to as the voice of hope. And after six months of, of, of uh, conversations with her and her principal colleagues, um, those tapes were transcribed, and they eventually became the book. And now, here it is, jump time 15 years later. Uh, she's been under house arrest for the last seven and a half years, and prior to that, a one and a half year time in her house, a year in prison. And yet, many people refer to Burma as prisons within a prison. And yet, we have this woman who represents a constellation of other men and women, and together they're a luminous light of the power of nonviolence and the power of active love and active compassion to confront the tragically outdated, overly outdated, long overdue outdated uh, patriarchal model of, of uh, predator, capitalistic-oriented might is right. And so Aung San Suu Kyi isn't just a woman leader in Burma who's been released, to me, she represents not the only woman or man in the world, but represents a, a, a very necessary new paradigm of uh, seeing that politics and essence spiritual truth cannot be separated. Now, you, you mentioned that being a firsthand witness to genocide, both in Bosnia and in Burma, shook you, shook your dharma bones, shook you in terms of the meditation training that you received. Can you tell me more about that? How did it affect your outlook and your way of being? Well, it's deep in 
irrevocable challenges that were mostly pre-subliminal in a way. You walk around in a kind of um, wisdom hallucination at a certain stage of insight development. I mean, even the whole concept of enlightenment can be seen as a a self-generated hallucination. When you really look at its function as an absolute experience, and there is no absolute certainty in a universe of infinite mystery. I mean, totalitarianism, the study of it, the psychological study of totalitarianism is really the study of absolutism and certainty, and it's, it's anathema to, to intimacy. It's, the, it's anathema to, to freedom, freedom being ultimate diversity. And so many aspects of religion or the orthodoxy of spiritually correct mindfulness or spiritually correct insight. I mean, what is the progress of insight? What is enlightenment? How can you articulate stages of enlightenment? Is there an absolute truth in this universe where there is no up and down, where it's ultimately non-local? And so what happened for me was that I unknowingly had become fixated, if you will, in my own understanding, which I don't criticize, but I didn't quite have the confidence in those insights that could stand up in the face of of human suffering, as you mentioned, which was torture, murder, rape, and genocide. I remember one day, Tammy, outside of Sarajevo, I was with a friend of mine, which was the capital of Bosnia-Herzegovina, and I think most listeners will understand or remember that in the town of Srebrenica, which was perhaps the largest massacre of human life post-Holocaust, where nearly 8,000 Bosnian Muslims were killed in a matter of a couple of days by Bosnian Serbs there. Well, I had traveled out there with my friend who worked for the United Nations uh, just days after that, and it was really a tunnel into hell, truly on earth, to see the psychical and physical carnage of something so horrific. And I remember stopping on the way back after being out there at the scene of the, the massacres, and we were driving back in silence, and I know it's a bit of a heavy story, but it there's it's a heavy time, and there's hope to be found, I think, in the darkest of moments, I pray. And we stopped the car, out and we looked on the side of the road. There was a group of people in a field digging, and there were UN workers, and they really were excavating what looked to be a mass grave of some of the Bosnian Serbs that had been executed. And, of course, we instantly just were gripped, as anyone would, by the stench of decaying human flesh. And I looked more closely into this ground, this earth that we're on right now, spinning through eternity. And there was a hand, Tammy, sticking up through the, the decaying flesh and soil. And I could see it. I thought I could see it. I felt I could see it. It was there. It was golden. I could see a ring, a wedding band on what looked to be this person's hand, a man or a woman, I don't know. And it was at that moment there was something that just transcended for me. Because in one hand, you know, 
you know, I wasn't married. I'm not married. And I just said, like, marriage to me in some ways is the ultimate bond, the commitment of of healing the great divide in the human heart as well as really listening to one another, listening to one another, listening to one another. Do we really listen to one another? And here's this experience of absolutely killing another person because of their ethnicity, killing a person because of their color, how we persecute people because of their beliefs. It just brought up everything in the sun of the whole notion of non-duality. Is it really possible ultimately possible to heal the great divide that Dostoevsky called in his famous quote, you know, beauty is mysterious as well as terrible. God and the devil are fighting there in the battlefield of the human heart. You know, there's a lot of talk in the world today about right and wrong, good and bad, and the holism of of, of, of being and, and the power of a unified consciousness and the beauty of non-duality, of a seamless presence, the holy undivided. As a friend of mine has coined that term. And I had a breakdown. I went to my knees. And in some way I realized that my heart was equally divided as probably, I guess, I don't know about anyone, but it was deeply divided. I had not reconciled the inherent tensions of greed and anger and delusion. I had no safe ground inside that I could call, that I could stand on, called loving kindness at all costs. I could not do what Aung San Suu Kyi just did when she was released and talked about how she felt about her oppressors for the last seven and a half years. She said, I hold no grudge. I don't know that I could do that. I don't think I could do that. I don't feel that in me, and I didn't feel it at that time. And so my breakdown was the collapse of certainty. My insights just seemed to dissolve in thin air, and I felt vulnerable again for the first time. I think I cried both with torment and joy. And the tragedy of seeing this hand sticking out reminded me that there's a lot left in this world to explore. And I guess I would call it the great second coming of my Dharma life, Tammy, where I felt reborn into, okay, you've been a monk, you've had insights, you thought you were enlightened, you've taught many dozens, perhaps even hundreds of retreats, you've written books, you've met a world-famous leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, a devotee, an apostle of nonviolence, and you're face-to-face with epic carnage, epic genocide, and you've had a breakdown of confidence. And there I wept, and something came out of that. And I, the essence of it was the beauty of freedom, a freedom that's uh, larger and more indivisible than freedom born from mindfulness, freedom born from any particular tradition, and I'll end with this to end this particular moment of this conversation, but, you know, you know, everyone today pretty much um, understands the impact of climate change. I mean, Al Gore's movie, Inconvenient Truth, brought front and center as one major expression of, of, of of information about, well, how should I say, the the pollution in Beijing today, everyone knows, affects the quality of air in Boulder. But very few people in my circles or where I look and feel understand that the woman raped in Lhasa today by a Chinese soldier or that the homeless on the streets of Vancouver who's starving and hitting up 
with a dirty needle with heroin that's coming from both Afghanistan and also in Burma care of the generals and the Taliban, know that that rape and that person with a needle in her or his arm affects the quality of our own freedom. It's very hard to feel the psychical, emotional circuitry of that infinite interconnectedness, whereas on a biological level, we know that, you know, secondhand smoke affects the person who's in the room. But do we feel that the pollution of someone's freedom and the compromise of someone's human rights in another country really, really, on a visceral level, an emotional level, is the same compromise or impact in our heart here and now. And I think that's the evolutional edge that I'm trying to feel that happened that day in Srebrenica. And certainly what I feel Aung San Suu Kyi represents today is the universality on an emotional level, a deeply interrelated level of, of freedom, not just global human rights, but what is freedom? And that's the question of the era. And how can we sanctify it, elevate it, and expand it? Well, and then cycling back to your first comment about Aung San Suu Kyi's release, that she may be released, but she's not free because her fellow prisoners of conscience aren't free. Well, then she won't be free. We won't be free until everyone is free. I mean, this sounds um, like a bodhisattva freedom pledge or something. Well, Tammy, you, I would say that you've said it extremely well. In fact, she's saying the very same thing that you're saying. She's saying we are not free. Either we are all free together or we are all not free together. Quote, unquote, Aung San Suu Kyi last week. If my people are not free, how can you say I'm free, she said. An identical bodhisattvic comment, and it's the same comment that Desmond Tutu, the Nobel laureate from South Africa, who's a remarkable supporter of Aung San Suu Kyi, he used the concept of Ubuntu, which perhaps you and many listeners are familiar with, U-B-U-N-T-U, a South African word that he defines as that which, when you feel the emotion of Ubuntu in your own spirit, heart, and mind, when that's present, you'll feel that when someone else is feeling compromised, you'll feel that compromise as if it's your own. When someone else is feeling elevated with the emotion of Ubuntu present, which is really the emotion of interrelatedness, it's, it's intersubjectivity as experience, Ubuntu, bodhisattvic energy, intersubjective experience, felt realities, not cognitive or conceptual. And I think Aung San Suu Kyi, as a Buddhist, and of course South Africa with the concept of Ubuntu, and a lot of the evolutional sciences and physics in the broad spectrum that we have it, from theoretical to quantum, I think we're all feeling the impulse today that there's one lung and lots of variations on, on, on the inhalation of that one atmosphere and taking that atmosphere of freedom from a biological level to a psychical level to an emotional level to a consciousness level. It's not just as easy as going from individuality to oneness but to transcend, not separateness, but to go from the one to the two to the three to the four, to start caring for one another 
as we would a lover, a friend, a mother, or a daughter. I think that's what Aung San Suu Kyi is posing as, although I am released, I am not free because of my people are not being freed. I think that today is a very, for me, an important message, not just for contemporary seekers and Dharma students and teachers, but perhaps for the survival of the species, the biosphere, and perhaps even the evolution of the cosmos itself, is how do we expand the direct experience of, of shared experience rather than individual freedom. And in this moment, what I'm curious about, we've talked about the freedom that Ansan Sushi is looking for in terms of her people being freed as well as her release. But for you, Alan, what does freedom mean in a, in a world that's in the condition that it's in now, people who are suffering in the way that they're suffering? What does it mean for you, Alan Clements, to be or not be free? Essentially, it's the recognition, Tammy, that I'm free to talk with you at this very moment. I have my six physical senses that are present. For example, if all of a sudden the telecommunications that we're now operating through went silent, we immediately stop talking. There's no more freedom of interconnectedness based upon technology and the various resources required to keep that technology alive and interconnected. If I lost my vocal cords, the loss of voice, imagine losing free speech. Imagine losing the ability of the function of your ears. So it's the direct personal experience of, of, of some kind of reverence, the deep reverence, if you will, a sacredness, an experience of, of the sacred as, as connected to the temporary sensory apparatus itself. That I'm alive, I'm human. I have a young daughter, my hands, I can touch her, we can dance. So it's the most physical honor of body and, of course, mind. I have a very dear friend recently who was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's, and it's really quite mind-blowing to see how memory impacts experience and perception and how easy it is to assume certainty based upon concepts and knowledge, and all of a sudden you're some kind of taken-for-granted proximity to another that knows you and knows your history, and all of a sudden you begin to fade and that person no longer recognizes key moments of their life for their friends, their daughter, even their wife. And you hardly ever go through a day where you can really remember and kind of feel the sacredness of just a moment of perception, much less the loss of memory. So these basic biological aspects of being are remarkably important for me to understand essential freedoms. And then, of course, being in countries, Tammy, where there has been the absolute disregard for human rights, the freedom of speech, freedom of congregation. When I met Aung San Suu Kyi in 95, for example, uh, she walked to her front gate like she did just 10 days ago. She stood over the fence and people gathered. But in a totalitarian regime where gatherings of five or more are a crime against the state where you could either be imprisoned or lose your home or both, people started to gather there at the gate and they did so defiantly, knowingly, 
that by sitting there and listening to their beloved leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, the cost to that would be the very strong likelihood of incarceration, minimal losing your home and job, were unthinkable to see and feel that truth. And there I was. I always had an American passport. I could leave or be deported. But the crowds went from 5 to 10 to 100 to 10,000. And some of the kids, as young as 6, 8, not everyone there being filmed and photographed, many of them ending up in prison or losing their jobs and homes. And very much like today, for example, just two days ago, Aung San Suu Kyi visited a township on the outside of Rangoon, which the BBC reported the other day as their top story. And there were 80 patients with AIDS, HIV, imagine. And Aung San Suu Kyi went simply just to tend, tend to them in presence. And 500 people gathered in which she gave an impromptu talk on the importance of their dharma to put love and compassion into action and to help and serve the underprivileged and the needy. As a result of that, Tammy, the regime um, closed the very next day that government-sponsored clinic and literally evicted all 80 patients as a result of punishing Aung San Suu Kyi for having visited them. That's Burma's government. And it's an unthinkable loss of freedom and an incredible expression of compassion and the weight of that responsibility upon her shoulders and her co-activists to be so hemmed in to do something so remarkable and generous. And so I sit in my home here in Vancouver and I think about freedom I think about the importance, not so much of the freedoms that I have, but of the importance of knowing how I can support the freedom of other people and to feel more intimately that my freedom is deeply interconnected with theirs. So for me, freedom is about freedom in action. What am I doing today to utilize the gift of my body, my hands, my voice, my creative mind, my thoughts, and to express it, to elevate it, and to do what I can to safeguard freedom as perhaps the oxygen of civilized civilized existence. And of course, on a more deeply existential level or deeply spiritual dharmic level, you could go into more intimate or nuanced levels of freedom. How able am I to overcome the centrifugal force of my own self-centeredness and you know, it's one thing to love those who love you, as Jesus said, but even the tax collectors can do as such. So expand beyond my my gravitational pull of allenness to give more, to listen more intimately, to question more carefully, to look more carefully and try to decode my own self-deception, my own denial, my own repression, and to as Aung San Suu Kyi would say, keep on seeking to be a better person. The freedom to be a better person means a lot to me. The question I'm asking is I'm thinking of different Sounds True teachers 
who will talk about being free in this moment and that this freedom is available. And of course, when they're saying that, I think they're not necessarily tuning in to what you're describing, which is if there's anyone who's not free somewhere in the world that has a ripple effect and is impacting that supposedly free person in the present moment. And and I'm curious, it's almost like we might be talking at different levels here, but I'm curious what you think about that. Do you think that's a, a type of hallucinatory freedom? I'm free in this present moment? Well, it really depends on how an individual defines his or her freedom. I mean, it's, it's, you know, obviously under the Bush era, it was one of the most tortured, abused words ever used. You know, let's, let's, let's kill them to liberate them from, to free them from, from their circumstance. And so it became somewhat of a, you know, a tortured concept. I would only have to ask anyone who considered themselves free what they mean by that. You know, I can talk about it based upon your question of my own, but I can generalize. And, and you know, the Buddha put forth, if we can, t- you know, look at those texts, not so much from a historical record of an individual, but just a body of, of knowledge that's been collected from 2,600 years. And he, there's an ontological reference point in those teachings that defines freedom as the absolute absence of fear, anger, and delusion. That type of freedom, personally, I, have, I don't know it. I, you can't even say you've tasted glimpses of it because it, I've seen from my own experience you might have long periods of time where you feel relatively calm or silent or however you want to define your, your interior characteristics that illuminate the idea of freedom. But as I was mentioning during my time in areas of extreme conflict or refugee camps or war zones, that freedom is relative indeed. You know, it's very easy for me on one level to be free and calm in the company of a hundred silent meditators, but very complex in the day-to-day life of an intimate relationship or as a parent and unthinkably complex in refugee camps and certainly beyond anything I could comprehend to be in war zones for those brief moments to juxtapose uh, any sense of, of, of absolute freedom in the face of that level of complexity. So I think it's very contextual in that we must really see that freedom is a contextual experience. And I think the evolutional edge for me, I can't say it should be for anyone else, but, you know, you know, I'm participating in the future of Earth by trying to understand how I spend my money, how I live my life, and how I, and how I use things and how it affects my neighbor, other countries, and the future of life environmentally. And I think the same thing is being looked at today on a deeper and more discerning level on the level of consciousness. And so I see freedom more as an evolutional process than an absolute state of mind. I didn't follow that last thing you said, uh, that this is similarly, you were talking about your ecological concerns being looked at at the level of consciousness. Can you explain that? 
this, the same thing for me today is being set on the level of freedom because I feel that oxygen is something in the purity of atmosphere is, is, is very deeply concerning to me. The pollution of the oceans or the purity of the oceans, the purity of the water, the purity of the food, the non-contamination of the air. And I think the same thing for me is being done on the level of freedom and the purity of that freedom and the, and the sanctity of global human rights. And I do want to know how to feel more intimately that we're in not just a biosphere, but a, but a, a psychical sphere of consciousness. Again, to use the example that the political prison in Burma, their incarceration I'm not free until they're free. And that's the thing that I want to understand and to live my life more compassionately to support that process. Now, tracking back a little bit, you said something very interesting, that when you were trained as a monk, that something came from that training that was a type of certainty or a certain... You felt that you had a kind of knowing and that then experiencing the atrocities that you saw firsthand sort of woke you up to living without that kind of certainty. And I'm curious, what happened in your monastic experience that led to certainty? I would, in a nutshell, I think it's self-deception. I think there's in hierarchical systems and trainings where there's governing boards of the authenticity of your insight, the religion of Vipassana, the religion of Dzogchen, the religion of Buddhism, the religion of Sufism, the religion of non-duality, those kind of concepts, the orthodoxy of, of non-duality, the orthodoxy of, 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 of Vipassana training. Now, those are provocative concepts, and it's, it's, it's very easy to assume certainty about a state of mind based upon the validation of teachers in a lineage and it's also having seen many hundreds of meditators in my own training in Burma and other places in the world, how easy it is to assume a certainty about something that really didn't happen, <laughs> quite frankly. And so it becomes sort of like a, a kind of strange form of cultism in which there is this assumption that you make about yourself that it's been validated by the hierarchy in the system that you both now have agreed, unknowingly agreed often, that you both know. And then when people come to you, they don't know. And you're very kind about that not knowing, but now I'll teach you of what, I'll teach you a path and a training on how you can know what I know that you don't know. And that issue of knowing and not knowing is very rarely, I find in my 30-some-odd years of searching, deeply questioned by the hierarchy itself. And so are there systems and are there ways of checks and balances within the so-called hierarchy that questions one's own certainty? And for me personally... I put under the looking glass the entire concept of insight and, of course, even enlightenment being, um, you know, those concepts themselves, to me, 
need deep, deep decoding because they often point to the cult of certainty and certainty often goes into absolutism. And from absolutism, it's not hard, as I saw in Bosnia and in Burma and lots of other places where there's certainty, you all of a sudden have a religion and a religion that becomes an orthodoxy. And from an orthodoxy, you start to kill in the name of truth and freedom. And so radical vulnerability may be a characteristic of insight. In my insight, it wasn't. My enlightenment didn't have the characteristic of radical uncertainty or radical vulnerability or not knowingness. It had just the opposite. And so my breakdown was, I think, born from denial, self-deception, and uh, the religiosity that was inherent in my mind that was needed in a way to carry my insecurity out into the world. And I think the hardest thing that I've been able to handle out here is just Listen, there are no safeguards. There's no security. There is no refuge, ultimately, other than your own integrity and your dignity, and you have to define that. I have not yet found an insight that uh, riddles across or resonates across the spectrum of interbeingness that uh, renders uh, the demonstrative forces of of, to put it in a simple way, good and bad, genocide and ecstasy, neutral. I have not seen it, nor have I seen it in anyone. But that's just one person's opinion, of course. No, I've, I've, I think I've put enlightenment under a, a magnifying glass and torn it apart, but this idea of putting insight under such a, a looking glass, t- tell me what insight looks to you when it starts getting pulled apart? Well, it's, you know, one could say like in Buddhism, classical Theravada Buddhism, you know, Anicca, Nata, and Dukkha, classical change, that things are always in this evanescent state of infinite flux. I mean, on one level, it makes sense to use those words, but all of a sudden, you know, someone comes to my door, knocks on it, and says, listen, uh, you're an Arab American, and you're no longer allowed to live in this home and this deed is no longer in your name, and this house is no longer yours. I mean, and Nietzsche, to an extent, all of a sudden, someone pulls a gun out and says, listen, I really mean business, and then shoots your daughter, and you're out. That was Bosnia. That level of a Nietzsche is radical. Now, a Nietzsche meaning impermanence, yeah. Impermanence, yes. That nothing that you stand on can be considered secure or stable. Um, suffering, for example, dukkha, the classical essence of the Buddhist teaching, in a way. You know, it's one thing to understand suffering on a gross level, of course, disease and old age and losing loved ones and limbs and arms and headaches and toothaches and all the various things that happen. But to, to lose an intimate, I mean, really... And to feel that the boy and girl in Palestine, the nuns and monks in Tibet and Burma, the homeless on the streets of New York and Paris and London, all the various ways right now at this very moment, the six and a half billion of us and the countless other forms of life and the environment itself is in this radical state 
of flux with the characteristic of, at times, torment, anguish, and how many political prisoners I've interviewed who've been tortured. It's just unthinkable that the universe throws up in our face potentials that just stagger my heart. And again, going back to some of these experiences, I mean, I've relatively experienced dukkha as knee pain and back pain and rejection and loss and this and that, but I've never been with seven women who are paralyzed in their trauma and can't even cry because of the loss of their children being executed and raped in front of their eyes. So these insights may be true in your experience, but again, weighing them across the spectrum of more and more epic potentials, that level of kind of inferential possibility, I think it's important for us to, I guess that's what the quality of modesty and humility means. And so to banter around the concept of enlightenment, the way I hold it is, you know, and maybe people hold it differently, but it seems to have the ring of certainty. And that to me is anathema to, to one of the core qualities that I find beautiful today, which is just the innocence of not knowing and the purity of, of a vulnerable heart that recognizes that anything that you see in the world could happen to you right now mm-hmm. and likely will. Now, you said you spent six months interviewing Aung San Suu Kyi. And in that time, I'm curious what some of the most important things were that she said that changed you. I have to say pretty much, Tammy, you know, being with that lady was both a privilege and an honor, but at the same time, it's whom she introduced me to as well. I used the word earlier on in our conversation, oh, I think I did, that Aung San Suu Kyi is, of course, a woman, a remarkable lady, a remarkable person, attributes or tremendous compassion. She has what she calls metta as deep interest in otherness. She's a, she holds the nation as family. She's a mother of freedom, and she represents, uh, in some ways, and cares for your freedom almost sometimes more than you care for it. But it's the people that she introduced me to. And she's the first to say, although I've suffered, it's the people in my country who suffer far more than I do. And she's a constellation of about seven or eight or nine men and women whom are her mentors and key colleagues, Tammy, that I had the privilege to co-associate with for those six months, that together formed and reformed and illuminated parts of my heart and psyche that I had not quite felt or nurtured. And one of the qualities that came away with was that they're really funny. They're funny people. They're defiant. They use satire and comedy as a weapon. Um, And not often people see that about the the Burmese or the Burmese Buddhist or Aung San Suu Kyi. She's remarkably witty, uh, defiantly satirical, super smart. And uh, in a way, she's not untouchable or impervious to anything. Uh, she, the one side can laugh and, and celebrate in her autonomous joy at another time, she'll meet a political prisoner or a family of those who were imprisoned, and you can see her crying with them. So she has a great feeling capacity, and I think to answer your question, in essence, 
Um, I was curious about the way in which he used the phrase, our nonviolent revolution is called a revolution of the spirit. And very much today she's using our revolution as a peaceful nonviolent revolution. I asked her, Dosu, what is the meaning of that to you? She said, uh, Alan, you were in front of us, the gate recently, and you heard me speak. Everyone there risked incarceration. It's the courage to stand up for what you know to be true. It's the courage to care for things larger than your own self-interest. In short, the essence of revolution, radical change, peaceful, nonviolent revolution, is the courage to see, the courage to feel, and the courage to act upon what you see and what you feel in support of another person's freedom as your own. And those were the three most salient words and, I guess, expressions of Aung San Suu Kyi's essence that stayed with me. The courage to feel another person as self and the courage to act upon that feeling uh, as if that person were self for the purpose of elevating their freedom as your own freedom. And I think that's really what Aung San Suu Kyi ultimately is about, a deep love for interrelatedness and the experience of freedom that's co-associated with that, that deep visceral connectivity. Beautiful. Thank you. Finally, just one last question, Alan. One of the themes running through our conversation that's been very meaningful to me is the idea that we can fall into these times, these places of self-deception where we think we know what's going on. We've had some taste of something big and vast, and we, we think we have some kind of knowing, and then it becomes calcified in some way. My question to you is, how do you stay true to that radical vulnerability, which you mentioned, that embrace of uncertainty? How do you stay close to that? You personally, how do you do that? Well, Tammy, it's, it's a very personal affair for me. It's not necessarily that spiritual. You know, Burma was my, the birth of my dharma as a monk and later as a layperson, and eventually it wasn't so much as an activist, but as a response to a family who were being persecuted by a regime. And so my family has grown from my daughter to my friends and partners, to, to embrace this country, this, this, this quest, this nonviolent quest for liberation from their own internal processes of fear and anger and the liberation from dictatorship. And Aung San Suu Kyi is a friend and a mentor. This constellation of men and women near her are friends and mentors. And having been in a 25-year relationship with them, it's just a daily reminder that my freedom is, is deeply interrelated to those people, and I feel honored to have them in my life on a daily level and to be able to speak about them. And also, having a daughter in my life. I mentioned earlier, perhaps before the recording started, that I was an accidental monk, um, I went to Burma to meditate. I ordained simply to be able to stay. I was an accidental writer. I was asked to do all of my books. I never really chose to do them. 
except actually the most recent book, A Future to Believe In, that I wrote for my daughter. But I'm, I'm an accidental activist, but equally an accidental dad. And my daughter, a four-year-old girl, Sarabella, uh, she reminds me of, on an everyday level of the, the beauty of innocence and that she can't care for herself and the importance of, 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 of really learning the language of, of, of not teaching but listening, seeing her as teaching, not me as guide, and to allow myself to be nurtured by that humility uh, from someone so young and open and innocent and to feel the feelings that I feel for her as my daughter and to not be so negligent or naive or narrow or arrogant as to assume that my daughter stops when I see a child other than her or a, an adult or even as someone whom may be considered to be an enemy. So she becomes a living example of the power of love to be expanded beyond her to the people both whom I meet every day as best as I can and of course the human village in the village of life as we know it on this planet, and uh, expand outward from there into the peaceful exploration of this infinite cosmos and, you know, life, the universe of life. How do we keep evolving the miracle of life and the miracle of love? Feeling. Feeling, feeling the beauty of life is, I think, the best teaching to keep me radically alive to the best of me and to keep hearing and seeing the best in others. Feeling. Courage to feel. Wonderful. I've been speaking with Alan Clements just a little while after Ansan Sushi was released from house arrest in Burma. Alan, someone who has worked closely with Ansan Sushi and has also recorded with Sounds True an audio learning program called Natural Freedom, the Dharma Beyond Buddhism. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.